We're going to go ahead and get started today. So, Father God, um, we come um, in with hearts that are just broken um, in fullness of humility and contriteness before you. Father, we bow in the fullness of worship to you and praise and adoration. Father, it is so fitting as we come to a close in this um, great epistle that uh, all Father, that all power and dominion uh, is acknowledged unto you in worship. It's a, it's a great closing of worship focus for you. Thank you for uh, this study that uh, does just penetrate to the depths of um, our own lives. Father, it exposes um, so much of the weakness and yet the importance of building foundations of from your word that uh, just allow us to endure through various trials, uh, circumstances, suffering. And so we are always reminded of uh, that. So I pray that uh, today your spirit will lead and guide us through uh, this important section of First uh, Peter. That Father, that does uh, give us a strong exhortation um, and a reminder and a warning for us. Uh, Father, what that we are embattled spiritually uh, every day uh, with a dimension that is not it's beyond our visibility, and yet uh, we do see that uh, Satan's hand is at work behind, and yet we do proclaim the victory overall through Christ. And uh, for that, we have we have the greatest confidence and trust in the work that He's doing in our lives for His greater purpose uh, to conform us more and more to the image of His Son Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, and I pray that now we just commit this time in sharing together in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. just want to make sure this is going okay. Yes, okay. Well, as as last week I gave you this introduction, and um, the passages was of greatest importance as we wrestle as believers, we wrestle with, not against the flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the powers, against the rulers of darkness in this age, the spiritual hosts of wickedness, Ephesians 6.12. The fundamentals that we talked about last week, the importance of those basic fundamentals, as Peter closes this letter out, and bringing us to this as, as sort of saying, we need, as believers amid persecution for those that are yet to come that are going to be very intense in our lives that we don't know what they're even they are that we must master the fundamentals and what I have so humbly shared with you and so humbly realized that it doesn't matter where you're at is that um, go back to the basics and so we must apply these to our lives in these fundamentals in a way that it is for the purpose of our spiritual maturity and our effectiveness for God. And as we have talked about these basics, and Mickey asked about that chart last week. I put it in the handout for you this week. Uh, did you get the handout? Okay, I put that in there for you. Um, it, it, as far as these basics in the building block, and this, is, this, this beginning of, of 1 Peter... Uh, brought us to this place of 
reminder of the foundations of our faith in Jesus Christ, in the, Christ being the very cornerstone uh, of our faith, the beginning, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and closing then with those very basic attitudes and attributes that essentially become the outcomes of the victories that we can proclaim in Christ by building that foundation. What I was reminded of is, is that it, these foundational principles themselves is that these are, this is where our challenges are every single day. And yet, uh, almost in a staccato type fashion, Peter just starts walking us through these. And as last week we spent time in looking at these first few of the submission aspect, the humility, the trust, is that we now move to the second part of the passages as we're going through, as it relates to self-control and vigilance and fortitude and hope and ending with worship. So Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, verses 5, 11, follow along. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by the brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our outcomes, these fundamentals, these these basics that lead us to spiritual maturity is that if we humble ourselves completely in humble dependence on God's sovereign will, this is what will carry us through the sufferings of this life ultimately onto the finish line of faith. Every day we need to be reminded that it needs to be in the fullness of humility, dependence upon God. Where I failed this week is that at a conflict, at a conflict with two other individuals that were challenging me. And it was my pride that was saying, I'm right and they're wrong. And I knew I was right. And so therefore, I engaged in that, that confrontation. I struggled through it. And at the end of the day, I was reminded by a very gentle voice that told me at the end of the day, did you pray for that meeting? I did not. It was my dependence and not a dependence on God. And so therefore that was the failure. It was pride. I was right, they were wrong. And it's the perfect application for me in what I'm sharing in this passage because now as I look back in hindsight, as I break down the details, I didn't take it into prayer. But it was, I saw the opposition that was building behind the scenes. And that was Satan. So let's go back to the basics. Some kind of we picked up last week to kind of go through this fairly quickly. These basics started with submission. Peter writes, to be subject to your elders. It is this first foundational principle. We see this throughout the letter. We've gone through this. It's submission. He exhorts those leaders in verses 1 to 4 to shepherd the sheep 
And he, now he's likewise he's saying that as they transition to this new group that they should be submissive to him. They should line up under those, those leaders. It's a call for respect. It's a call for honor. It's a call to give deference to those in spiritual leadership. The people of God must learn to submit themselves to those leaders. Ephesians 5.21, we're familiar with that. It says to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Hebrews 13.7, it talked about remembering those who rule over you. They teach. They lead. We appreciate them. We esteem them. We honor them. We follow them in their examples. The second foundational principle towards maturity. Clothe yourselves with humility. Submission and humility, they're linked together. And in this this, this attitude of humility, it, it is this humility that bows ultimately, as Peter writes, in God's sovereign, God's sovereignty. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Remember that we talked last week about this, this mighty hand of God. It is this God's sovereign power at work. It is His deliverance, its dominion. It is His God's discipline. It is God's chastening, His testing. <laughs> I realized that this week, the testing. For what purpose? It is, to, it is a purifying process in itself. It takes us back to 1 Peter 4, 17. It is a humility that always looks to God and to eternity in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. He may exalt you in due time. It is that God will... This focus, first of all, is looking to God as God may choose to raise you up out of the trials during this time. There may be a a time period here that it is according to His time that He will take us from there. He may choose not to take us out of that time. But ultimately, to eternity, to Christ's second coming, in this focus on the ultimate finish line. And sort of where we left off last week is then the third was trust. Casting all your care upon Him because He cares for you. It is trust. God is God is providing this casting. There was this picture of you know this throwing. I think someone mentioned last week it's like, you know, Peter was sort of this fisherman, so it's like this casting. And it really what it is is that, that God essentially is providing the receptacle. He is saying, bring it on to him. He'll take it. It's not me. It's not I. It's a humility that always always forsakes the worldly anxiety. It is a trusting ultimately in the sovereignty of God and recognizing that God has the fullness of perspective in all, submitting it to that. Absent that, we're almost saying to ourselves is that we really don't trust that God's in control. In other words, if we're, that's, again, I'm bringing my I into that, into that statement. I really don't believe that I needed to pray about that this week because I knew all the answers. And yet God is working all things together for good. I love that Psalm 50, 55, 22, but I will trust in you. It is a humility that rests in God's care. It is a humility that rests 
in God's care. Psalm 56.3 says, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in Him. It is this... Where is it? This is where we find the peace. I love the Matthew 6, 25, 34 section. We don't read the whole section. Just at the beginning it says, Do not worry about your life. Remember the whole sequence of things. And then what does it end? It says, you know, don't worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow take care of itself. Today we have enough issues to deal with. But yet it is this aspect of rest that can only be found in God's ultimate care. His trusting in that. Because all fret does is it just brings about problems. It indicates a lack of trust. Philippians 4, six. what? Be anxious for nothing. And through prayer, forgot about that this week, through prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. And He will, what? He will provide that peace. The peace of God. And so what we pick up in this... First Peter's section here, as I think, is one of the most critical pieces of this thing, as it relates to this whole aspect of submission to God. Now it brings us to this place of saying, "Now I want you to don't want you to submit to Satan." <laughs> it's the opposite. It's like an opposite message. So what happens? He says, "Is that resist." It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. So it becomes now a shift in the focus. Instead of all that he's instructed us in these fundamentals, as we look at those, this next one is this aspect of self-control and vigilance. Is these next two key Principles, these first basic fundamentals, self-control and vigilance. Be aware of your adversary. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Peter gives us two commands in this passage to start with for godly thinking and discipline. The first one he says is to be sober. And what this means to be sober, it's this aspect of self-control. It is this discipline of the mind. It is sensible. Peter has used that two times previously in chapter 1, verse 13, where he is, this section where he is talking about living before God, our Father. He says, Therefore, gird up the, lo- up the loins of your mind, so there's the mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says it uh, again in chapter 4, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and sober. Be watchful in your prayers. In Titus 2.2, 2, that, that as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. And so this aspect of this balanced... Very uh, a balanced life. In other words, it's a godly life that's in, in the, under the control of truth. And so it is this opposite of being this perspective of physically like intoxication where there is an imbalance. There's no alertness. There's nothing. And so within a state of imbalance is therefore you become 
succumb or you can be allured into the things of the world. So in other words, to be drawn into it. And so when Peter would say, be sober, he's saying, first of all, we need to have this aspect of control and discipline of mind. The second one he says to be alert. And this is this term that means to be watchful. It means to stay awake. It means to have a cup of coffee. It means to be... It's the opposite of sleeping. <laughs> and so uh, what I, I, I like about it is, is that it's this, um, this, this picture of... When you say sober and alert, it's someone that's really up. It's like you're ready. And the opposite of that would be, spiritually, would be someone that would be somewhat apathetic or like just very lethargic. Um, you know how you have a big meal and then you're sitting watching, you know, Lori kind of tells me, you know, she said, you'll, at night you'll get home and you just lay down and next thing you know it's like an hour is gone. What happened? You just, you just fall asleep. You're not very alert. And she was talking to me. I'm going, she's like, well, did you get, hear what I had to say? I'm going, well, no, I didn't. I didn't quite get it. I'm not. I wasn't. Wasn't awake. And so this is. These two things bring us to this place of first of all the self-control aspect of it. So when he would say Peter to say is that be sober, be vigilant, be alert. It is this aspect of is that spiritually we need to be crisp. We need to be sound, founded again on the word. Unresponsiveness is the opposite of responsiveness. And so what Peter is saying is is that what I'm going to tell you is that what we're going to face, in other words, you, you have no idea the relentlessness of Satan. You have no idea of this aspect of the, the fierceness that is going to come. You have no idea of the, 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 the degree of opposition that he'll come at us. That is why he says, as a preface, to be sober, be alert. It is. It's. It's. I'm going to hit it. It's destruction. It's destroying. It, it's a total breakdown. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a very great. I, I do want to look at that because um, I don't. I'm not a, a nature person, you know, so you, I just you ask the question, well, why do lions roar? And in the, some of the passages, it talks specifically, like in Psalms, is that the, it, you, you clearly see them roaring in, to their prey. Um, I believe, as it looks like, is, is that it is this aspect of instilling fear um, in if you think about that, when you are afraid, how do you respond? You don't respond with a degree of alertness, and you are you're fearful, and you can be easily caught. You become prey, and then you get devoured. So we'll, we'll kind of. The purpose of just bringing that up in the yep. context of what you're talking about here is like I just think so many times we don't really understand yeah. we would be alert, we would be sober, we would have that perspective, but still. Yeah. To, Let's go there, because uh, there, there's a lot. I think you, if you hit on a very important part, whether we get through this or not, you can just keep going on this because it is so uh, foundational, I believe. 
because it doesn't matter where you're at in your spiritual life. I was reminded of that this week. Peter exhorts his readers to be ready. (laughs) There it is. To be ready for what is coming. And not be surprised. We understand. We've heard that. And when it is upon us, it's persecution. It's them, it's us. Persecution and suffering. And that they and we must realize and recognize that Satan's hands are in the difficulties that are faced. He is working it behind the scenes. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time, and these are out of, out of sequence in your hand out there, but uh, that was my fault in how I put the charts together, the slides here. But just for the background, and we, let's just hit a few little bullet points here about Satan, first of all. He is your adversary. Peter writes, your adversary the devil. And these terms mean that he is the opposite. He's the opponent. He is a legal term for your legal opponent in a circumstance. He is the accuser. He is the, a hostile type of enemy. In fact, he's referred to here as a roaring lion. That is not a, a pleasant description. It is a malicious type of description. He is the slanderer. He's the accuser. I mean, you, can, you guys can go on and keep adding to this. Three times Jesus called him the ruler of this world in John, right? Sequentially. And the aspect of that within his, this environment and this whole study was the fact that we're, we're, as believers, we're living in a very hostile world. He is referred to as a ruler of this world, specifically. In Revelations 12.10, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. That's believers. I think it's a direct relationship to what, we, what Peter wrote In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he says this, um, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that they may speak against you as evildoers, um, that they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God. He says it again in verse 3, verse 16. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers. Chapter 4, verse 4. Peter repeats it again. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So it is the accuser, you can see, that he, in this case, what he's reminding them of is, look, you've been falsely accused. Whether that was by government, you've just been falsely accused. And what he's saying is that Satan is behind those even that are making those false accusations. That was my sobering reminder this week. You see, I'm engaged in something that is it's meaningless. But yet... The accusations that were coming at me is what drew me into the fight, you see. is the discrediting of the... and just allured me in, and there I was, as the believer against the accuser. They were justly, unjustly accused as being evildoers and recognizing that these accusations, Satan is behind them. Now... I want to go through this next section without 
getting into into a lot of detail. But as we look at this overall arching theme, that what we've seen in in the book of 1 Peter, it has been this focus on the topic of suffering. And so, for the very first time, he does mention Satan all of a sudden at the end of this particular book. And so, can we make a relationship between Satan and suffering? And I believe that one of the best places to look at that is literally within the Scripture through the temptations of Christ, which we'll go through. So Satan's view of suffering is dictated by his view of success or glory. There's an addiction to success that's led us to his own downfall because of, the, of his pride. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of these because I took him... You, know, you've, you can take... Um, Isaiah 14 is probably one of the greatest examples of that. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. And I want you to let me listen to the verse and you tell me from the standpoint, it says, how you are fallen from heaven. This is the fall of, uh, of Satan. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who weakened the nations. For you, Satan, for you have said in your heart, I will descend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be the most high. Ezekiel 28. These are all similar. Again, they just point again to... Ezekiel 28, verses 11 to 15. I'll just read one verse. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. And because it talked about how, uh, again, what he had, what God essentially within the Garden of Eden, he entrusted, had access to all of this, and yet it was the aspect of sin. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. 1 Timothy 3, 6, reminder to those leaders. I think it's a direct relationship. See, when he says younger, you younger, uh, you younger men, what did he say in, in, to 1, Peter, uh, 1 Timothy? He said, for, he said the qualifications of those elders, those leaders. He said in verse 6, Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation, as the devil. It is success. It is self-glory. And so I, I want to use those, those interchange of words because this is the culture today, isn't it? It's a success culture. And what drives people to this place, it is pride. And it is my success. or you know, What is all behind there? Anyway, so it led to his downfall. And so Satan... He tempts men on the basis of their success. I, I really like this passage in, in 1 Chronicles. I'll just read it to you. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. And, and I repeated the 1 Timothy 3. Here, here's what it said. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Again, it's all it says. Satan stood up against Israel and he moved David. And so what is happening in there is 
What? What's the, what did that mean that he was going to number Israel? <laughs> you got it. Brian nailed it. it it's all... Well, I wanted to see how big I got. You know, it's all about my success. Yep. <laughs> yeah. He will tempt us in the basis of success. But for those who suffer, Satan tries to convince them. Two things. Is that God cannot be with them and cannot care for them. In other words, if you are suffering, what Satan will try to do is to convince them or us that obviously God is not with you. Because if you think about the success things that are going on, in other words, if the focus is on, if like in other words, hey, how, how, are, you, how are you all doing today? And if you say, we're doing great, well, obviously we're not suffering in here. Because all is good, right? That is the success perspective in here. And so therefore, what Satan tries to do, and, and you, it's exactly how he starts in Job. He starts that off in Job chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. He says, so Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Question. And then he, he goes on. Well, have, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? In other words, life is good for him. Do you think? It's obvious. Satan sees suffering then as the opportunity to turn us from God. Because obviously, God's not with you if you're suffering. We see that it creeps into the New Testament in many places, even with the, the, the perspective and the challenging aspect of the Pharisees themselves and how, even how they would look at anyone that was suffering and they would say, obviously he's a sinner. There's something going on in his life, right? Is that they, they view it because they would say success, not success, failure. This obviously is a bad thing. Absolutely. <clears throat> Obviously, obviously, he must be a big time sinner. Yeah, some major problems going on with that. It's interesting is is that when we studied this passage in First Peter one ten eleven, actually, I, I remember covering that section. That in that passage, these Old Testament prophets were searching carefully to try to reconcile what they understood about the Messiah, and what the challenging thing was is that they connected the Messiah with what? This king, reign, success, dominance, ruling, and not crucifixion, death, humility. And they challenged. They were challenged by that. And I just I share that just because, again, you can see, and it said right in that, that passage specifically, he says, 110, he connects those two words. Where he says, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They were a connection of those two things. And so even themselves, they were challenged by that. So Satan's view of suffering and glory is evident as we go through this his aspect of trying to get... So what I want to do is kind of go through this fairly quickly, is this first temptation. If you just turn quickly through to Matthew chapter 4. 
and you'll kind of connect, make the connections of this. In the first temptation, Matthew 4, 1-4, to Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Satan's objective in that first temptation. What, let's Before I fill in here, Jesus should use his what? His power, right? He, that was the temptation. To use his power to end his hunger, which is suffering. Okay, Use your power to end the suffering, and therefore it will reveal his glory by commanding that the stones be, become bread. So this first objective in here was is to use the power to end the suffering. Do you see that again? The, the relationship between Satan and suffering. And the same test was to Israel. Uh, um, chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, let me read those three verses because it's, I think it's a good one. Every commandment, uh, this is chapter 8, verse 1, 1 to 3 I'm reading. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Important section. To humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by the very word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. First temptation you can see here is that he tried to shift it again. Um, relationship between glory and suffering. The second temptation, going back to Matthew 4, Then the devil took him into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, You shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written, Again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Satan's objective, let him who put himself in a situation, him, Jesus, in a situation where suffering is inevitable. In other words, it says to cast yourself down. Cast yourself, throw yourself down. In other words, it's going to be, it's like a bad situation. Suffering is inevitable, and then God will what? Come to the rescue. God will then save him. In the same test, I could see in Matthew chapter 3, this is the verses 1 to 12, this was the John the Baptist. John, he, he confronts, he says to these Pharisees, you brood of vipers, you know, why are you coming here? And they respond back saying, well, wait a second here. I'm a, we're of Abraham. Basically what that meant was is that we don't need any of this because we're already in the club. We can do anything we want. In other words, I can do anything because God will save me just because I'm, I proclaim Abraham as my part of the lineage. So, suffering is inevitable. 
and then God must save is this test. The third temptation, Matthew 4, 8-11. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only and shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Satan offered him glory, success of these earthly kingdoms for the glory Satan would gain by obtaining worship of the Messiah towards him. Israel had the same test. When Moses was gone, they found another God. You know, let's just let's do the calf thing. Okay? So, the, such temptations did not end at Christ. In Luke chapter 4, verse 13, someone read that passage. It's kind of interesting connection to what we just finished. Because it's said in here that the devil left him in the end of the temptations. What does Luke chapter 4, verse 13 say? And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What does that mean to you? Yeah, he was coming back. Can you tell me when that? Can you give me an example of what that was in, in the life of Jesus? Anybody, anybody in that garden? Anybody else that might have messed up that said, "May it not happen to you, Lord," Peter. Recognize that the opportune time to attack, not only through unbelievers, but even the believers. It's Peter. There he is. Peter was... Satan left him. The devil left him. Didn't leave him. It's not gone. I want us to understand that. He's going to wait for another opportune time. And it's not, this time, the unbelievers. We know that Christ was constantly battered by these unbelievers, the accusers, that Satan was behind those. But I want us to recognize that it is even those believers that he could work. It's the opportune time. The fact that he said that in Luke is that he came back and it was Peter. Now we can understand Peter's reason for establishing this link between suffering and Satan and that chapter 22, I think, is a very critical verse for understanding everything of a reminder, from a reminder perspective for Peter. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Someone want to read that, please? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter knows. He knows too well. And he failed. And sadly, I did too. He was not sober. He was not alert. And yet, we see the fact that what? What was it that allowed him to persevere? What was that one thing that allowed him to persevere? After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace is called up, restore. I'm going to make it real simple. and I'm, You're right, Ian. I'm going to make it even simpler. Faith. It's the faith. 
Because what he said is, is that, that your faith should not fail. You see, is that God protected and upheld Peter's faith. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. He failed in what he did, but his faith did not. And if you look at the, the, what the, he, he takes us in here, he's telling us and exhorting, Peter says to exhort you to be careful, be on alert, be sober about your adversary. And he says, resist him. How? Steadfast in faith. Faith is the factor. Like Through that, Anne, then we see that ev- everything is for purpose then. Go ahead. So that's what I said. It, it gives me chills because this is that's how he's writing it, I believe, is that he has that reminder and we're seeing that transformation in his perspective from first hand experience. Sadly. That, that strengthen your brothers. That's that, he says when you repent to take your framework, thanking your brothers is really a phrase that's I think God's gonna make all things. Mm. Our objective, again, today, dependence, complete dependence on God, humility, that we're submitting to God. And that, I think, is this, this the fullness of recognition on His part that that's, a, that's a, the faithfulness of God. Amen. Huh. Marlene, it's a, it's a perfect segue into where... If we get there, not today, maybe Mark. Sorry, but uh, in verse ten, that's this is that's this perfect. These these four descriptors, you've just that's exactly what happens. Is that after you have suffered, then what happens? You become stronger. Is exactly what it's being described there. That's perfect. And stronger. This whole thing that I've heard today, pride gets in the way. Yet that it's a spiritual battle, and we think that into these battles the pride that gets in the way. When we remember it's a spiritual battle, remember that we do have a dependence. Our strength is pride. The strength is, it's, it's a building on, on the trust. The confidence that we have in God that He's going to take care of everything. It's like I'm not, I'm not bringing anything with me. It says casting all of your cares upon Him. So it is the fullness of that trust Nowhere of mine. I think it's you're hitting on a very, very critical piece of this, because that Satan wants to find the every little thing in your life that you cling to, that you hang on to. I, you know, I just have the picture. I'm just like, what am I hanging on to? Because it's like, where do I have my confidences in certain parts? And it exposes that I have a lot of them. But it is those aspects of when you break it all down. It's it's fact is is it's pride. It's no other word to describe it. Man. And I just find it very interesting. The placement of this comes after in verse the beginning of First Peter five when he talks about errors and submitting and because I think too often we view as our enemies supposed to right now. That's the church, that's what he's gonna family, the church, those God ordained But even she has already to be Christians. He's he's a diverse creature. <laughs> That's what you have to understand. The, the diversity, and let's let's just move to that. And what time should I stop here, Mark? And then you just you know I'm going to have to go first part of next week a little bit. Okay. 
All right, well, let's, let's just tee it up, okay? So we'll, and we'll go through it. Um, I want to get a good stopping point because it's critical. The diversity of his methodology, because you see opposites. In other words, at times he's what? He is this angel of light. So it's deceptive, it's an unawares aspect, it's unnoticed. But sometimes we see in this passage, and this is specifically what he's saying, is that it's very evident. In fact, it is a direct assault. His opposition is direct, and he is described as this roaring lion. And I'll end on this one for, for this week, and then we'll come back on it. So, the roaring lion. A couple of passages, I'll just give you like the psalm passage. That's the first one that's there. Psalm 104. Psalm 104, verse... It just, it just uses this descriptor here of 21. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. Okay? And then, if someone read Job 1.6. And I want you to picture, get this image that you have here. Uh, How there was a day when the sons of God came to also came among them. Keep going, uh, Brian. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan asked, Crawling about the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you heard my servant Job from your upright man, fearing God? And we'll stop at that point. Thank you. So what's, how, how what does he, where does he say, where, where did you come from? What's the image? It's a roaring, he, he's roaming, okay? He's in pursuit. And a lion that roars, why does he roar? I believe he, why he roars because he wants to know that he's in pursuit because there's fear. And it's interesting is that I did read one, it's not a national Greek check, everything is saying, I was like, why do lions roar? There's two different theories about that. One is that there's a roaring to, for the, maybe from the purpose that one roars so that maybe the younger lions could trap them, you know, and because they're in fear that the, that the, that prey is being pursued, would be frightened in it. Also, read a, a perspective that the roaring lion roars because thinks that he is the best. Wants everyone else to know it. I'm the king of the jungle, is right. It is what? Pride. What are they called? Rubble lions. A pride. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. We'll pick that up next week, okay? It's a good, it's a good stopping point um, at this point. So, uh, Mark, I don't want to interrupt, but what? So, just uh, kind of walk me through schedule-wise and things. Yeah, what? So I was just yeah. That. It's like next week then is our Thanksgiving. Okay. So, so is it the? Is it the? So we're off the week before yeah. Thanksgiving. So the, the the so the Sunday of that weekend, that Sunday we're we're good. Okay. Okay, so, Mark, I know you're picking up, but with your permission, I'll 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 finish these last couple, of, at least to get through the section I was supposed to get through. Um, but uh, can you uh, close this in prayer? Great, thank you.
Amen. Okay, well, we'll be back together in a couple weeks then.